It's an FAQ NYC election extra with the great Ben Max joining Professor Christina Greer and me, Harry Siegel. Hi, guys. Hello there. Hello. Hey, and we're going to talk about what was at stake in an awfully low turnout citywide election where, despite polls showing New Yorkers broadly unhappy with the state of things, there were just a handful of competitive city council races on the ballot, along with three uncompetitive district attorney races, two nearly impossible to read and relatively low stakes statewide ballot initiatives, and lots of bullshit judicial races with no real options. So I don't know if there's a through line to these results, but here are some of the top lines as we record this Tuesday night. Christy Marmorado appears to have upset Democrat Marjorie Velasquez in the 13th District, making her the first Republican representative at any level of government in the Bronx since 2004. In Brooklyn, Democrat Justin Brandon pretty easily held a seat in a rare battle between two incumbents against Ari Kagan. The switch parties can become a Republican after New Mouse placed the two in the same district, and Brooklyn Democratic boss Rodney Spichat all but endorsed Kagan. Even as Adams, by the way, endorsed Brennan. Um, elsewhere in Brooklyn, Conservative Democrat Susan Zhuang cruised to a win in a newly drawn so-called Asian Opportunity District. In Queens, Republican incumbent Vicky Palladino cruised past Democrat Tony Avella in a much-anticipated rematch. And finally, while there was really little doubt about it after the primary, it's now official that Yusef Salam of the Central Park Five is officially representing Harlem as one of uh, what I think will be just four new members of the council following a cycle when every seat was nominally a play. Uh, Chrissy, anything standing out for you in all this in an election where hardly 20,000 people voted in the most competitive council races? Yeah, I think for me, it's turnouts, not necessarily the candidates. I know that we have early voting and I know New York State kind of late to, to adopt that compared to some of the other states, but people aren't taking advantage of it. I don't know if it's an education thing. I don't know why it is that Folks just aren't interested in municipal elections. You know, there were two proposals on the ballot that I thought were pretty interesting and important. Um, city council members are in charge of a lot of money. So even if it seems as though they can just, you know, quickly coast to victory, it's still important for us to exercise our sort of duty and right as citizens to participate. I think part of it also, Harry, is it's really frustrating for me when people keep calling this an off-year election. There's no such thing as off-years in New York, Right. We are in an odd year election, but New Yorkers go to the polls basically every year. So these are important elections. There's a lot of money on the table. You know, we know that obviously we need to pay attention to who our representatives are, especially who our judges are. So I think I'm I'm disappointed that so few people felt that this election was worth their time. Ah, I feel that. Uh, ben, you, you've been watching this uh, this closely as ever. There were nominally also three districts attorney races, uh, none of those terribly close. But what's uh, what's jumping out from you, uh, if anything, about these results? And is there any broader picture you're seeing from them? You know, I'm still trying to process the broader picture here because I feel like it's it's a little bit all over the place um, and can get into some of the specifics on that. I mean, I think a couple of things. One, the low voter participation is something we're kind of used to at this point, but still, as we've already been discussing here, it's still worth lamenting, as is the sort of lack of competition in so many districts and in the district attorney races. And those two things combined speak to this question of how often we're having elections and whether there should be some really big change to the election cycles. Um, 
some of this obviously with these city council elections has to do with the fact that we just had the census and redistricting and these are all newly drawn districts some of them very different some of them only a tiny bit dis- different but you know there's some real questions about whether new york city should be doing things differently and you know at the state level exempting new york city they passed uh a law to shift local elections um to even years and that's something that you know could be one of the many solutions that have been offered by some to you know address some of these challenges um at the same time you know i don't i think especially with early voting and absentee voting there's a lot of opportunity for people to vote and we just have a real sort of crisis of civic participation that allowing everybody to vote down ballot during a presidential year doesn't necessarily mean that people are actually more invested and in paying more attention to their local politics, which are so important. So that's maybe a discussion for another time, but that's definitely standing out to me when we see a lot of the lack of competition here and so forth. Where we have seen competition, you know, for the most part, I think it's really interesting that in in the contested races, most incumbents are going to be just fine. And in some cases, by much bigger margins than I might have expected. And that goes for some Democrats and some Republicans. Uh, at the same time, this one likely upset in the Bronx of Marjorie Velasquez losing her city council seat, it seems, as we're recording here, I don't think it's been uh, finalized or called yet, but um, it will be by you the know, time that's you significant. To it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. First victim of the city, yes. Exactly. I was just going to say, I mean, that's significant because a part, a, clearly a part of why she lost is because she agreed to a rezoning to bring a little more housing to a, a district in the Bronx that builds almost no new housing amid the city's massive housing crisis. And getting punished for that uh, electorally uh, is, you know, is a significant moment, I think, in in local politics. Um, at the same time, some of these other results are really interesting in terms of, as I said, the strength of the of the incumbents. Um, and, you know, just real quick, the Velasquez loss in the Bronx is in a district that in the 2021 mayoral race, Curtis Sliwa narrowly won. But then you have other districts that Sliwa narrowly won or won by a wide margin where the Democrats are doing just fine. So, again, this speaks to local issues and the candidates themselves and all the things that make up elections. And it's a little bit hard, uh, at least at this moment, and probably some other people have some more sweeping thoughts than I do right now. But it's a little hard to to pinpoint um, broader takeaways uh, other than the, the general concept of incumbent strength, I think, is still pretty strong. Can I just interject really quickly? Um, I'm looking at some data from John Molenkoff. Shout out to John Molenkoff, friend of the podcast. Um, but he gave me some data about the mayoral election in 1989 compared to 2021, which speaks to, Ben, exactly what you were saying about turnout. In 1989, participation was a little over 1.8 million people in the general in 2021, participation was a little over 1.1 million. And we have a lot more New Yorkers from 1989 to 2021. But we see the numbers of people participating has gone down by smooth 700,000, even though we've added a few million people and voting eligible populations to the city, which I think speaks a lot to how people feel about municipal elections. And this is New York City. Like, no disrespect to, you know, Upalachia, but like, these people are in charge of a lot of not just money, but a lot of really important policies. 
I guess it is important when we when we do look at that historical comparison to add though that 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 was when the general elections for mayor were still highly competitive contests, right? And mm-hmm. we've seen that drop off in these last few cycles, at least um, you know, at least since uh, the Bloomberg era ended, and he was putting you know hundred million dollars in election into making sure that those were uh, competitive or you know Republican slash independent wins. So, but but yeah, I mean, there's there's some real some real challenges there. And I think, I mean, I think that speaks to a a lot of different trends over these last decades. Can I just say real quick, one of the other big things I was just looking at, assuming sort of the Velasquez loss in the Bronx holds, um, because of the different ways with Justin Brandon in Brooklyn defeating another sitting city council member. So that is a district that stays Democrat. And then Susan Zhuang winning this new seat in Brooklyn who's a Democrat, she says she'll probably caucus with the the quote-unquote common sense caucus that is Republicans and conservative Democrats. But all that said, it looks like the next term of the city council that begins in January, the city council's 51 seats will still be 45 Democrats and six Republicans. Uh, And so I guess that's sort of a big takeaway that not that much is probably changing here in the city's politics. Yeah, but just a few years ago, it was three Republicans. So, I mean, we can think about in a short span of time, Republicans have technically doubled. I mean, it's still only six, but I mean, it is a doubling of the numbers. So, I, you know, and, you know, I'm constantly saying that New York is way more purple than we want to believe. So, I don't know if this is like a, a canary in the mine. And Adams likes dealing with that caucus and is obviously mm-hmm. comfortable with that. And there's a handful of things actually like the, the redistricting maps where where they, they end up with outsized sway. But they are still a really small share of the uh, caucus. So, since you mentioned him, and, and I agree, Christine, I mean, that, you know, I'm just saying now there, you know, there there were hopes for Republicans that they would keep building on that momentum yeah. here. And, you know, you could say that obviously unseating a sitting Democrat in the Bronx is a, is a is a nice win for Republicans, and and that absolutely is. Um, but you know they were hopeful that Ari Kagan would defeat Justin Brandon. Mm-hmm. They were hopeful they might be able to pull out this new seat in in Brooklyn in the quote unquote Asian Opportunity District of forty three. They didn't win that, you know. So so some of the momentum seems at least uh, on on somewhat of a pause here. Um, since you mentioned the mayor, Harry, I mean, I think his absence from this election cycle mm-hmm. is a really interesting theme. He sort of, I think, begrudgingly gave his endorsement to Justin Brandon. They've been on the outs, even though Brandon was a vociferous Eric Adams supporter in 2021. And then lots of things happened in the city council speaker race that I won't go into. Um, But he endorsed Brandon. He endorsed Keith Powers in Manhattan. But again, those were just sort of statements put out in the news. There were, as far as I know, he did no campaigning. I don't know that Marjorie Velasquez would have wanted his help in that district in the Bronx. But since this rezoning happened that the mayor wanted to happen and was and was trying to get the city council to pass, even if Velasquez had opposed it, I would have assumed that maybe the mayor would have been helpful to her. And so maybe, you know, again, those campaigns make those calculations about what's helpful and what's not. So we can't just say, oh, the mayor didn't show up for her. We don't know if she wanted his Mm -hmm. help. But. You know, when you when you're talking about these low turnout elections, I don't know. I think, you know, I think it might have made sense. And maybe this is something to talk to the campaign about and ask, you know, if if they maybe regret not asking the mayor to come campaign with her, who knows? But um, 
you know, I think in these low turnout elections, you try to really bring out, you know, as many Democrats as possible if you're the Democratic nominee. Um, and maybe the mayor could have helped with that. I know uh, the governor popped into that district, I believe, in the last days. So just some interesting stuff there with uh, with Adams's absence from this from this election cycle. And as you say, Harry, you know, he's he, he Adams probably would have been happy to see a little bit more conservative momentum than we see in these elections. So. <laughs> quick, 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 funny thought here. Uh, still in the Bronx, still with Marmorado. Like a big, weird personal theme in that race is uh, her family ties. Uh, her brother's the head of the Bronx GOP, and her husband is is a top official with the uh, Bronx Board of Elections. Um, this came up in, in very hostile form. Um, uh, she called Velasquez a snake at the end of their last debate after she brought it up and said, your husband worked for the last mayor, all this stuff. But I bring it up to go back to what you were saying about our not off, but certainly odd year elections. Um, and just to point out, like when I went to vote this morning, there was one other person voting and maybe 25 people working there that having all of these separate and distinct elections is one of like the last really nice patronage operations uh existing in the city in a lot of ways and i think that is actually one of the uh real disincentives for the people who uh are in on that right now uh to the prospect of shifting it my other issue with shifting to the presidential year incidentally or any other year is sadly nobody votes differently in down ballot anymore um you know you have all sorts of national numbers on this it's a very depressing trend uh, the, the makes for less competitive general elections. Although, to be fair, we didn't have that many competitive primaries in this cycle either. You know, at, at the city, at least our count was five to watch in the primary and got up to seven in the uh, general, although most of those turned out not to be so close. Mm. I mean, you know, the way, given term limits, the way that these elections work very often is for the most part, you know, we're electing people for what's usually two terms, right? And with the funky city council calendar with redistricting, it's like a four-year term and then two two-year terms or whatever, you know, it, it might two two-year team terms, then a four-year term, whatever it might be. But but basically for eight years, um, you know, for the most part, obviously we're seeing, you know, we've seen some incumbents lose, whether in the primary or the general here, but for the most part, you know, the most of the competition is when when the seats open. And obviously that's the same discussion that happens every time. Now we have, you know, a, a citywide or borough-wide official who can run for two terms. They're running for re-election. Is anybody really going to take them on in a primary type of thing? Mm-hmm. Ben, you weren't there when we got to discuss the uh, FBI raid. So I know there's a few things, other things we can talking about here. Um, speaking of new members, this Chris Banks, but but let's step back for a minute and uh, we just had this political landslide. It felt like in New York City, you had a really, really good article in New York Magazine about how the left had been struggling to find a candidate to run against Adams that came just before the news of this FBI raid. So I'd love your thoughts on where things stand now. And as it turns out, the mayor is not going to go and uh, hang with the legislators, uh, the lawmakers, uh, you know, in Puerto Rico this year for some funny reason. Well, I, I think 
the raid on the mayor's fundraiser's home uh, sort of heightens the conversation and, and definitely makes some of his potential challengers sort of turn up, uh, um, you know, turn turn up the uh, dial a little bit on their exploration and maybe some, you know schedule a few more fundraisers type of thing, right? But I also don't think it's necessarily at this point a game changer. We don't know. You know, there's just so much we don't know. I feel like uh, the information that's out in the public is is potentially 5% of what we're going to eventually find out about whatever's going on here. And the full 100% might not implicate the mayor at all, you know, directly. So, you know, I think it's way too early. It doesn't look good. Uh, but But if this winds up being some... Turkish nationals getting indicted for for you know trying to pull off a scheme to influence the election, you know that the, the, the mayor might be right that where there's um where there's smoke there's not necessarily fire for his, him and you know his involvement and maybe even people in his circle. That's a very generous, obviously, way of reading it. But I also think you know we just we're often way too quick to sort of jump to conclusions. Uh, you know, based on a limited amount of information. Um, I think no matter what, that Eric Adams is vulnerable in 2025 because we just have never really seen a situation like this where there is a plausible sort of, you know, and I was kind of trying to get at this a little bit in the article, you know, there's a plausible liberal plus progressive left lane to just pull off a, a, a win against him without a huge scandal. It's possible. I, he's still a favorite, you know, he's still going to be extremely strong as I wrote, but, um, you know, listen, this, this, if you're any of these candidates taking a look or people who maybe were ruling it out and now they're starting to take a look, this obviously adds a little bit of uh, fuel to the fire, but I think it's, it's way too early to know. The thing is, and you got at this in your latest daily news column, Harry, the thing is that you know, there's just a lot of stuff adding up that doesn't look good for the mayor, even if none of it winds up being a massive bombshell. There's just a lot of stuff that doesn't look good. And then the more things that are going awry for him, the less he wants to talk to the press, the more mm -hmm. combative he may become. Um, you know, it, it, he he's already giving people uh, lots of um sort of ammo by skipping out on the White House meeting and other meetings in D.C. that he was supposed to go to that very day and coming back to the city, which I know you guys discussed on the last episode of the show, which was a great conversation. So, um, you know, those are sort of sprinkled thoughts. And I think there's just so much that's TBD. And after you guys add on to this, you know, I, I do want to add a note about sort of how I've been thinking about this versus when Bill de Blasio was running for re-election in, in that's, 2017. Well, that's, I wish we had the podcast in 2015, yes. 2016, because at a time, everyone thought, you know, this man might be in the clink. You know, it was like, what's happening with Emma Wolfson? Like, is she going to go down and hold the bag? I mean, there were a lot of conversations and then he barely has a challenger. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Sal Albanese. Right. So, I mean, the first question on all my, you know, intro to politics exams, it's like, you know, what do you need if you start a campaign? And the first thing is, it's like, it's a candidate. So I do think that, you know, Adams right now is definitely getting more and more vulnerable by the day. But who's who's stepping up? Who will step up? And if one steps up, you know, my theory is, I just feel like the the narcissism that is inherent in elected officials 
thanks for listening, elected officials. But there is something in your personality style that makes you want to see a problem and think that you can solve it. I think if one jumps in, they all jump in. And then that that creates, unless the progressives can coordinate themselves and say, okay, Ben, it's your turn. Like, you do this. But I, I don't know if someone can see themselves as a progressive see one of their colleagues who's a progressive jump in and not feel the need that they need to jump into. Does ranked choice make any difference with that? So potentially, you know, if everyone is, if there's two progressives in the race, but all their voters are putting Adams third, it doesn't really matter. Or, or does that dynamic still play? You think? Uh, ben? I mean, I think, I think it plays less but i think we saw in 2021 with a crowded field and ranked choice voting that it there's still there's still issues around sort of who gets more attention who gets more uh fundraising um meet earn media all, all sorts of stuff um that really matters where um you know you you, you saw in a ranked choice election all the exhausted ballots that wind up going out because people don't necessarily think through some of the rankings or haven't been told by the candidates and the campaigns and the organizers and all that about how they should be thinking strategically about it. So um, I think it matters still, even under ranked choice voting, how crowded the field is. My sense is that for 2025 against an incumbent mayor, who's more of a moderate centrist, whatever you want to call Eric Adams, you know, that there will be a broader left effort to not have it be a crowded field. But to Christina's point, you know, it's like the 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 extent to which people can control that is limited, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in, even with a very sort of wounded Eric Adams, which I don't think he's that at this point, but we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I don't know how many people who would have to give up their current seats to run would actually do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'd still potentially be looking at a pretty limited field of prominent people. I think I, I my my guess is. If you have any of the sitting electeds who would have to give up their seats, so we're talking about Brad Lander, Jamani Williams, Antonio Reynoso, you know, the major citywide or borough-wide officials, you could toss Donovan Richards into that mix as well, uh, and maybe others. I think we should. I only I only think one of them, you know, one of them potentially gets in. I, I don't know that I don't know that more than one of them is willing to give up their seat. And I also think um you know, but it, but I, but I think it'll be potentially complicated by what Je- you know some of the state officials who are looking at it do, which includes Jessica Ramos and Zellner Myrie, the state senators, and then who who knows who else. Well, we know men wake up in the morning and like look in the mirror, and it's like I should be mayor. It's like says who says me and no one else. So I mean, I I think that we're talking about like the greatest hits names, but I still think that there's some other names that will probably yeah. pop up as well, and we're not even thinking about and- these people. And I don't have any reporting on this, but my my hunch is that as soon as this FBI raid happened, Catherine Garcia's phone was probably blowing up, you know, yet again to say, hey, you know, do you want to rethink this? Right. Um, you know, I don't think she runs. I, I haven't thought she runs. It's a very different thing to take on an incumbent mayor than to run in an open race. But, um, you know, I'm sure those calls are happening. What about Christine Quinn? I mean, Chris, Chris, she could always, she, uh, she was probably getting some, some messages too, you know, she, before the raid, she was very, you know, clear that she, she declaring she would not run against Eric Adams. You can always change your mind in politics, obviously, but, um, you know, I think Christine Quinn has one more mayoral run in her and I'm not sure she wants to do it in a 
big uphill battle against an incumbent, but maybe. But someone reminded me and pointed out that Christine Quinn said she would not run against, she would not run for mayor in a primary. She said, I would not run against Eric Adams in a primary. So there's like a sliver of daylight that's left. Um, Mm. I took it as, oh, she's not going to run. But when you start listening to the language of politicians or former politicians, there's a crack in the door that I initially missed. That's a, a subtle That's um, interesting. distinction. Yeah, it's always good to parse those words because, you know, people will say things like, like I'm not running against Eric Adams, which means, you know, could mean currently, right? I'm not presently right. running against him. Um, and if he's not in the race, then that like doesn't that. mean that I'm not running. Yeah, I, I mean, I had in my piece, and I, I think he said something very similar when he was on your on this show. Uh, Zellner Myrie, you know, sent sent me a statement for for the New York Magazine article where he said, you know, I'm I'm wholly focused on winning re-election in 2024 and helping Democrats win the House, but you know, I love this city and I, it needs leadership, and we have a lot of serious crises. So you know, he left the door wide open and. Um, but without, you know, without saying as much and he's obviously putting, getting his name out there more and more. So, yeah, I think all those things will change, um, you know, could change. There'll be lots of trial balloons and all that sort of stuff. So plenty of time between now, you know, the the interesting thing though, is people say it's early, but not when it comes to the money for the, for that piece. Exactly. You know? So again, this is where sitting elected officials obviously have a big, big advantage. People like Brad Lander, Antonio Reynoso and others, you know, can raise for their reelection to their current seat and then quickly turn that into a mayoral campaign if they were to decide to jump in. So they wouldn't have to declare that early. Only old fashioned, but I feel like if you run for an office, you should give up the seat that you're in. If you want to, if you want this office, then you should give it up. When John McCain ran against Obama and he was simultaneously running for Senate while he was also running for the presidency, it rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, if you want to be president, then say you want to be president, but don't say like, oh, and then if it doesn't work out, I'll just be a senator. I like, I am of a firm belief. It's like you give up the seat that you have to wholly commit to being in the race for the job you say you want, and if you don't get it, then that's a sacrifice that you made. Speaking of uh, of different races, just for a second, Ben, you brought up Bill de Blasio before, and this might be our, our closing note, uh, a man who, who was mayor for eight years and almost and a little and poorly ran for a ton of stuff after that. And I think we're going to circumstance he was in in his first term to where Eric Adams is at now, if you wanted to uh, complete that thought. Yeah, I just, you know, very quickly in Bill de Blasio's term, as as Christina was getting at, you know, he was he had all these investigations swirling around with uh, the nonprofit that he started and how he was fundraising and then doing favors for the donors and and all that. And there were there were investigations swirling, and now obviously there's investigations swirling around Eric Adams and straw donors and the Turkish government, you know, <laughs> maybe trying to influence the election or who knows and, and various other things. Again, we know. A limited amount here. But point being is that roughly halfway through both terms, there's investigations swirling, there's people, you know, f- talking about potentially challenging them. I do think that again, short of indictments of the mayor himself, or maybe someone really close to him, like his top advisor, Ingrid Lewis Martin, you're in a similar situation where 
it's still an immense uphill battle to defeat an incumbent mayor. But I will say that one thing I, that strikes me as different is as people were circling Bill de Blasio, Scott Stringer, the controller at the time, Ruben Diaz Jr., the Bronx borough president and others, there was never other than the sort of competence and ethics combination there wasn't really like a lane to take him on in a primary, right? It was going to have to be, uh, this guy's corrupt, I'm ethical, and I'll focus on running the government, which is, uh, you know, actually an appealing argument to people like me, you know, who like are really focused on the nuts and bolts of how the government is is being run, but not necessarily that exciting of a message in a in a democratic primary. Um with Eric Adams, as I was saying before, I think the big difference, though, is there's very clearly when you look back at the primary, there's clearly a, a lane to try to take him on when you try to combine that sort of liberal and progressive left behind someone who is, you know, in the vein of running government well with more of a progressive to liberal viewpoint and Bill, the people forgot, you know, part of the reason Bill de Blasio was not as much of a target was because his primary win in 2013 was so dominant and he had such a broad electoral coalition. Um, and so I just, you know, that has stood out to me a little bit as a difference as, as we see some similar sort of patterns emerge here, but, but uh, that could be a bad analysis as well, but that's, that's something that's, um, sort of stuck out to me as as Adams looks to be in a very broadly speaking similar place to de Blasio, you know, a couple of years in. So yeah. prior to this next council, the last time there was a Republican council member in the Bronx was 1983. Uh, Joseph Savino Jr., who was an at-large member, um, this according to Politico. So it's almost my lifetime. It's a. It's been a minute. I don't know if it's a sea change, but it is striking. And you know, as Ben, you were observing, like there wasn't a rising red wave, but uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, entirely receding either. Uh, it'll be, I think, very interesting to see how this plays out going forward in in higher turnout races and with sort of bigger elections at the top of the ticket. I also, I mean, it's interesting, you know, Justin Brannon won this race by a much wider margin than people expected. In Queens, in the district, my home district where I grew up, Vicky Palladino, the Republican, huge right-wing Trump Republican, defeated Tony Avella, former city council member, state senator, who she barely beat in 2021, is is winning by a wide margin. So, again, Again, a lot of this seems very localized. Mm. That will be a closing note, I think. Uh, ben, thank you as always for uh, joining us on election night. We really appreciate you. My pleasure. It's uh, maybe my favorite tradition going. Yeah, since 2018. Somehow none of us look a day older. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is part of the city, a nonprofit news outlet dedicated to the people of New York. As a nonprofit, we run on donations. If you've appreciated our election coverage today, the best way to thank us is by setting up a monthly donation to the city. 
You can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give. And if you already give each month, thank you. And you can make a special one-time gift if you want at the same URL. That's thecity.nyc slash give. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. And the pod also receives support from PNT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. We're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, and are affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY's City College, where Chrissy Greer is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars' inaugural fellows. Our hosts this episode were the great and good Ben Max, the fabulous Professor Christina Greer, and me, Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is the inimitable Adam Kamara, and as ever, Thank you, listener, for joining us, making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.